Welcome to the Thrive in the Workplace podcast brought to you by The Wellness Theory in partnership with B1G1 Business for Good. This podcast is all about uplifting organisations to thrive when it comes to all things workplace wellbeing. From organisational culture, the most effective wellness campaigns you can imagine and integrating social good, you will find insights, inspiration and information that supports leaders at all levels to implement best practices to improve engagement, performance and vitality within the workforce. We believe that workplaces can and should be healthy and sustainable for both the workforce, the bottom line and the community. And in this podcast, we'll show you how. And just so you know, for every listen this podcast gets, we'll be donating to a life-saving project aligned with the UN 2030 Global Goals. So thank you for being here and continuing the ripple effect. Without further ado, join us to thrive in the workplace and become a force for good in the world. I'm your host, Charlotte Stebbing-Mills, and today I'm joined by Bobby Hartshorn, who is the founder of WellWise. Bobby is a workplace well-being and performance enthusiast, researcher, and strategist. She optimizes wise organizations, leaders, and employees who understand that employee experience and their well-being are vital components of long-term success. She does this by applying cutting-edge research, straight-talking insights, tailored strategies, and practical implementation that can be embedded and sustained organization wide. So welcome to the show, Bobby. I'm so excited for this conversation. Me too. Thank you so much for having me on. I absolutely love it when I meet someone that is geeks out on this stuff as much as I do, but also can talk about this stuff all day long. But for our listeners' sake, we're going to keep it on point. Um, and I would love for us to kick off with you sharing, you know, why do you do the work that you do at Wellwise and a bit about you and your background? Well, that's a great question. I actually started in the student space, uh, working with universities and um, student accommodation providers all over the world and uh, developed a wellbeing strategy for um, for student accommodation context for for students. And um, and then the pandemic hit. And uh, what started to happen in our organization, organizations all over the world was that you know, the well-being issue really came to the fore. Uh, you know, I think it's been kind of bubbling under the surface for some time now, but it, it really hit businesses quite profoundly. And I started to realise that a lot of the great work that we'd been doing and the huge amount of the research that I'd done in my role in that student space was equally valid um, in the workplace. Um, and I also was very aware that the young people, People that I'd been working with in the student space were, were entering the workforce or soon to enter the workforce and that they were going to be coming with very different challenges and needs um, but also lots of opportunities for business um, but also you know an interesting or I suppose a, a higher d- demand level for well-being and I think that that was something that organizations were going to struggle with so in the middle of the pandemic, I decided to leave that role and um, jump into the world of workplace well-being. And, and what I really, you know, that at that initial sort of idea that I had around my, my I guess my theory was or my hypothesis was that whilst well-being is fairly universal, it's going to play out differently in different organizations and different sectors, and there are different challenges. And, and what I was constantly finding when I was doing my research was a lot of very generic um, advice and guidance. A lot of it was based around office-based workers and knowledge workers. 
there was only sort of smatterings of bits and pieces out there in terms of both intel and guidance for other industries and i thought well if we are going to really tackle this issue if we're going to really help businesses to um, manage this problem and, uh, and and help employees to to thrive in the workplace we're going to have to get a little bit cleverer about it and i was very fortunate that i um naturally a bit of a, a, a dweeb and like to research things and love data and and a bit of an academic and i have a business partner with um, a very long standing research business and so we kind of put our heads together and said how can we help provide the intel and insights that organizations say they want, but there is currently no mechanism for them to get that? And so we've spent, yeah, basic best part of two years um, designing and developing diagnostic system. Um, and uh, and then we offer some strategy development services as well if an organization would need that. Um, and then built an amazing network of people just like yourselves and, um, and other such um, specialist providers in the space. Because again, I think organizations have kind of been struggling to uh, find the right people to match their needs and, and the nature of their businesses and the nature of the challenges. So we kind of unearth the challenges and then we connect them up with um, with the right solution providers and, and give them a strategy to, to measure impact, really. Yeah, and that's such an important piece of this puzzle because... You know, one of the things at Wellness Theory, and Alice has probably heard me say this many a time already, and it's still a new podcast, um, you know, is we focus on three things, right? The culture element, uh, wellness from a campaign standpoint, and the impact of social good in the workplace and how we integrate that. And I know you really love those kind of three pillars. And a big part of what you do, especially from a diagnostic point of view, is around culture, isn't it? And the the link of culture and well-being. So what you do just fits like a glove to, to what we do and is so necessary because, like you said, there is such a shortage of well-researched diagnostics and mechanisms for people to actually implement this within organisations in a way that fits into their operational lives as well because it is it's more than one person's full-time job if you really looked at well-being uh, so I would love to know Bobby um from your side what is nobody talking about that they should be when it comes to well-being that is possibly the best question I've ever been asked on a podcast um gosh there are so many things we're not talking about it's really interesting actually Charlotte People are talking about this stuff, but they're the people like you and I that know this space really well. Our heads are in it and, and we have to be cautious. We don't end up in an echo chamber, right? Because when I go out and I speak to um, business leaders and potential clients um, and clients and things, I what I hear is that they're not where we are. They're miles away from where we are. Um, and so the big thing that I think we need to help leaders in particular get their heads around is that workplace well-being is not this add-on tangential nudge people to eat better sleep better do some exercise like sure that's part of it and i'm never going to tell an organization not to do those things but until we as leaders accept that the way that we are working the the styles of management that we have in our businesses the styles of leadership that we have in our businesses the culture that we create in our businesses, um, the policies and procedures that govern us, until we start connecting those internal business factors and understanding how those choices impact 
um, not just well-being, but as a as a result, performance and productivity and motivation and engagement and all those other things that people um, you know like to measure and like to increase. We have to essentially change the language and change the understanding because what has gone before has been has been the journey we've needed to go on to get to where we are today, and that's been great and fine, but it's absolutely not going to be um, ample enough to really kick this thing down the road and, and really move the needle and, and solve those burning and and really um, very destructive issues that we're facing in businesses with talent and, and talent management and retention and acquisition and all that stuff. Um, so yeah, so for me, the, the piece we need to start talking about more is what can we start doing internally to help address this issue? What behaviors do we need to change internally? And then worry about how we're gonna add on extra features and, and bring in externals and, and um, services and webinars and podcasts and all that good fun stuff. Um, because if we rely only on that and we don't fix some of the issues inside, we're ba we're barely scratching the surface of, of what needs to change. And, um, and you know, the burnout, the burnout epidemic on the book behind you, <laughs> is the, the exact product of of that not having addressed those issues um, and so if we want to deal with that we're going to have to have some really honest and frank conversations with ourselves and that's not always easy but there's lovely people like you and I around to help do that um, so that would be my answer to that question. Mm, nice yeah that, again there's so many ways we could dive into that answer uh, but with regards to um, what I'm seeing as the solutions that people have been entertaining until now when it comes to organizations. It's been very kind of quick fixy, latching onto these things, people that say they do corporate wellness, thinking that wellness and well-being are the same thing, and through no fault of their own, because they, you know, like you said, we're in this, we live and breathe it every day. It's our full-time job. Like it's, it's it's good that we are doing this, but not everybody sees that same snapshot and has that experience and passion for it. So it makes sense why people opt for the for those those kind of quick wins. Um, but in the long term, they're not wins. So can you explain, in your opinion, what is the difference between wellness and well-being? Brilliant. Um, so I've actually got an article on this on our website. Um, so if anybody wants to go dig into that in a bit more detail, um, you know, head over there, bewellwise.com. But um, wellness is uh, very much based around the sort of, Physical um, wellness, so exercising, sleeping, um, eating a proper nutritional diet. I mean, even now you're seeing wellness creeping into tourism, so wellness holidays, um, spa treatments, relaxation things, all of that stuff. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that stuff, but it isn't well-being. Yeah. Well-being is your sense of self it's your sense of where am I on this planet how do I fit in am I happy with that am I fulfilled with my life am I in control of my finances of my career of my day-to-day -day existence am I heading in a direction that feels meaningful to me um, am I reaching my full potential or am I being held back by um, something and it's a much deeper, more, the word, the very fact that the word being is in there yep. tells you it's all about the human being. And um, and I think that it's, uh, and that's another thing that we need to, people like you and I need to help educate the the workplace audience about this, that, that we are talking way beyond your traditional wellness 
type um, stuff and it, we're taking it deeper into the psychology into the cognition into the mental side um, and and yeah that's that's the difference and and really I think historically corporate well-being even though it's always typically been called well-being although in some places wellness it's it's sort of latched onto that other side of it at possibly at the expense of or not even realizing that we we need to go to that other side that fulfillment piece that achievement and accomplishment piece that sense of purpose piece so yeah so for me there that that's the distinction and I am really careful in my language and when I'm writing that I'm absolutely talking about well-being not wellness most of the time yeah, it's, it fascinates me because it's like anything, right? We've all got our own labels and definitions for things and then we kind of start from there with our solutions and then where we go next. So it's important, I think, for anybody to really write down what they believe wellness to be or well-being to be so they've got a distinction that makes sense for them as well because I'm, I'm in alignment with you that's exactly kind of the, the way I would define it I would add into the the well-being pieces is that the environment piece so wellness mm-hmm. being the the psychological and the mental health I would say also in a workplace and then the the broader scope is the well-being because I can be a very well individual you know, I can be getting enough sleep, I can be eating the best, I can feel energized, I can love my life, but pick me up and put me into a toxic working environment. Whoa, now we're having a very different conversation. My well-being is going to suffer drastically. So yes. And I also think well-being is, I think wellness is something you can kind of manage to a degree on your own. It's a bit more of an individual thing. And so, you know, you can choose when you sleep, when you, what you eat, you know, how you spend your afternoons, etc. Well-being is, I always call it thriving is a team sport. The, the interrelationship between one person's well-being and another is so strong that if we, and this is why culture is so important in businesses because of what we call the social proximity effect, which is that I will start taking on the behaviors of others near me because that's how humans work. Um, to to get that sense of belonging. Now, if those behaviours are really healthy and really thriving and and really positive and are are creating value, then lots of people will trip into that. If they are destructive behaviours, if they're toxic, if they're micromanagement, if they're control-driven, if there's a very high smoking population, you know, all of this, we all eat McDonald's six times a week, other people will start doing that. Even if they came to you, as like you said, as a super healthy, super engaged person, they can easily lose those good traits and start adopting the bad traits, which is which represents a massive cost to businesses um, and to the individuals. So, yeah, so I think well-being is very much about the interconnectivity of you and your surroundings, but also the people that you're with. Yeah. Um, and that is very hard to maintain good wellness when you are in a bad well-being environment. <laughs> exactly right. And the, uh, a long-term strategy that includes both I think is what underpins peak performance, right? And the the subtle difference between the two is what will make or break a, a, a program essentially or a strategy that an organization has. And you've touched on something really important there, which is like the the leaders and like the, the role that they play in that, right? Because yes, it's proximity to um, you know the person next to you that might be at the same kind of level as you. But as soon as we start to model people and we model those that are more senior to us, which is natural and very much, you know, a part of our human nature that we would do that, is like we we sometimes see a blurred line between what potentially good leadership is and what not so good leadership is and that will then have this knock-on effect so 
talk to me about your your views really what you've been observing perhaps over the last you know year or two here in the region and like when it comes to leaders the good the bad the ugly tell me everything like what's the biggest maybe issues that you're seeing all right let's start with bad and the ugly um so look i don't we people often ask me to talk about the region as in the gcc and yes, there are certain things that are maybe more prevalent here or more um, extreme here. But what I'm about to say are issues globally. I have never, ever spoken to anybody in any company who doesn't go, oh, yeah, I've not, I've experienced that. Oh, yeah, that, that happened. We've got someone like that in our business. Oh, yes, I've had that in the previous job. So I don't think that the GCC is particularly unique. And in, all, in, all, in some ways, as we'll get to when I get to the good, I actually think they've got an advantage. And I'll come to that in a minute. So some of the some of the really ugly stuff that we see, and I guess this does um, this does dominate here, is we still have a super stratified income level and and a, and a super stratified um, payment system and, and salary system. And the thing that I I actually had a conversation with somebody about this the other day. I said what we choose to pay people and and all that that's that's a business decision. How we choose to talk to somebody, treat them and support them, that's a personal choice. So as a leader, am I choosing to turn up as a bit of a bully, um, as seeing you as a second class citizen, as not seeing your humanness, as seeing you as just a pawn in the game, completely disposable? I do think we have that issue still here in the region and I don't necessarily think that only exists in in those lower salary positions I think it exists uh, further up the food chain but I think we're we're some way away from servant leadership here and we're still very much in egotistical um, power driven leadership and there's some cultural um, things at play that create that so I think that's an a hugely unfortunate um, part of of the leadership trend here um, in terms of the bad, I definitely think this is universal. You know, I was actually chatting, interestingly, to um, Andrew Stotter Brooks earlier today, and he was talking to me about he, he was explaining to me that he was having a debate with somebody about whether or not leadership is about relationships and people or whether it's about technical skills and, and prowess and, and capabilities. And uh, both Andrew and I very much, unsurprisingly, sit on the uh, on the relationship side. Uh, but the person he was put, speaking to could, could not have disagreed with him more strongly and said, no, 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 no. leadership's all about my ability to be a great engineer or a great lawyer or whatever it is. And the people is secondary. And I think that is a leadership crisis that we are now really paying for. Um, and I think that exists everywhere. And I think that we cannot blame leaders for not being great people leaders because They've not had years of experience and development of those skills. We've not invested in that as organizations. And so, you know, uh, Deloitte's recent research, 84% of managers believe that they are part of the cause of burnout. They are starting to acknowledge that, 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 that they have a role to play in another human being's existence. And I don't know as that has, that consciousness has risen to the level that it needs to to rise to. And I don't think that the system of business is doing enough to unravel some of the less 
helpful elements of the old leadership style and um, and move us towards that those more people centric and human centric leadership styles, which we're all desperately in need of and craving. So I think that's the bad. And then in terms of the good, I'm absolutely seeing both here and um, and all over the world um, an acknowledgement that that is starting to be a problem. A, a huge, I mean, I do um, freelance training and I train for other organizations and a, a huge proportion of the work that we've been winning this year has been about human-centric leadership skills, upskilling those managers, developing them, um, developing their people skills in, and, and also working with organizations from a consultancy perspective to say, you not only need to train your people to have these skills, but you also need to give them the permission to make ethical choices. So, you know, if somebody says, mm, I, you know, I don't really, I can't really work past 5.30 because of X, Y, and Z, you have to feel confident that you can let them do that. And you as a leader or manager are not going to be holding over the coals for doing that. So I think that there's some, there's some sparks of, of brilliance and, and moments of um, development happening, but I don't think it's going fast enough. And I don't think it's universal enough yet. But I, but as with all things, early adopters, late adopters, all of the rest of it. So, so yeah, they would be my my ugly, good, bad, and ugly. Yeah, what great answers. I think it's so interesting. Like what you what you've said there is like like some of the uglier things. Like something that I've witnessed um, from being an observer. They knew I was there to have a little kind of like observation of, of how the kind of company is running and we ran some focus groups and things like that and this for sure was not for my benefit this is clearly something that ha happens on a regular basis the ceo of the company fired somebody on the spot for their hairstyle did not like their hairstyle and this company is worth millions and it's it just boggles my mind i know that i would hope i really hope that that is you know a, you know a one-off scenario i never have to witness something like that again but it like it just made my blood boil <laughs> to, to... Where, like I, I suppose where i get to with that is i i just feel like somebody who has has found themselves in a position where they think that that is okay and that you know, you might you might have the authority to do that, but it doesn't mean you should, right? And and I think that you've really touched on a nerve there for me because I feel like that is a person who's completely disconnected from their humanness and their humanity. And I find it very scary and dangerous that we have people with huge amounts of power controlling economic systems and people systems and societal systems that think that they not only think but act in a way um and i suppose that coming back to the ugly side you know i'm a member of several hr whatsapp groups and discussion groups on linkedin and all that kind of thing and daily i'm genuinely daily some sort of ethical issue is debated on those groups whether that's um whether we should be paying somebody out their holiday that they've unused uh, you know, oh, no, my company decided to pretend that they'd used five days extra holiday than they really had. And so didn't give it to them at the end of their service service benefit. Well, not only is that illegal, first of all, but it's just massively unethical. And I, it, yeah, again, it just comes back to just because you can do something, it doesn't mean you should. And also, I think there's a real short termism. And this is another big challenge we're facing is 
we often make really short term decisions. We make decisions in the moment. We're dealing with the immediate problem that's in front of us. And, and we don't we don't then spend the time because we're all going far too quickly considering what the fallout of that is going to be. What are the long term implications of that decision going to be on my business, on the way that my people feel about my organization, about my leadership? about the way that I will attract new talent, about the level of productivity and motivation I'm going to get out of people. Because even though in your case, that um, that situation with the hair and the firing happened to one individual, it has ricocheted across the entire organization. And you know water cooler chat and everybody's just gone, oh. Yep. And you've immediately just so quickly destroyed morale and destroyed any trust and how can how can you have leaders that think that operating like that is good for business that's what I, that's what i really struggle with i'm like you are there as a custodian of a business it is your job to make that business run as as successfully as possible and and actions and behaviors like that are the total antithesis of that and and for me that stuff has to be called out and it has to be faced and we have to we have to deal with it um, but again if that's a if that's a behavior and, and a style that that person has always had and it's been rewarded and recognized and that person has got to CEO level using those tactics to date, I almost can't, you know, I can blame them, absolutely blame them, but I similarly understand how they've got there. And, and unless somebody's coaching them out of those behaviors and making that a requirement, that will continue. Exactly. And that just has that ripple effect through the business and not in a good way. But listen, it's not all doom and gloom, right? Because we're seeing oh. we're seeing the flip side, right? I've seen some fantastic leaders, some fantastic C-suite execs that all different um, kind of uh, department heads that are really, really leading change consciously, ethically. They might not be perfect, but they're striving, they're trying, they're working on themselves, they're working with their teams, they're working for their teams, and you can just see that servant leadership is coming through. So what I think is really important, though, is for us to, I don't want to focus too much on the doom and gloom, but it's a massive challenge, and these are obstacles that I know our listeners are facing day in, day out. So we've got some amazing leaders that we're working with that are also then working with CEOs, like I've just described, you know, or of that mindset. So how do we start to, in your opinion, influence those leaders that perhaps are on the the darker side of where we want to be going? Yes, sir. If, uh, I think if we really knew the answer to that question, uh, you know, in a viable way, um, well, we'd all be making lots more money than we are, Charlotte. So I don't think there's an easy answer to that. Um, but I, I do think it is. Um, I think boards have a responsibility to this stuff, you know, um, and that means that boards need to be having a closer look at co- company culture. I think that also means as leaders being educated about the cost of these things, you know, going back to that short term, long term ism, right? Yeah, it's all well and good um, making a short term decision to save um, $20,000. But if that then stores up a problem that's cost you $150,000 down the line, what was the point? And so I I refer to... um, there's a really interesting statistic by a lady called Cy Wakeman um, who uh, did some research on toxic uh, rock stars and particularly in the sales function. And she, she discovered that for every $1 that a toxic rock star was making in revenue and sales for a company, they were destroying $3 of value. Mm. And so 
when until such a time as we really start to understand the business impact of these choices and these leadership styles and these ways of operating it you know we have to talk in the in the language of money because that's what CEOs are paid to do um, but also you know I think there is we also need great leaders to step up and and show that it can be done another way and it can be done another way successfully that it doesn't have to be this way I mean of course there's always things like coaching and training and all the rest of it but a person has to be open to that right and um, and I do think you know I have to say I do think for some it is an absolute lost cause they're in their 50s and 60s they're planning their retirement all the rest of it and and so I think in some cases it's just going to have to be we have to wait till they are fired or they leave um but uh but what is so hugely um I suppose uh, reassuring to me is that the tranche of leaders coming up sort of are now currently in their 40s early 50s they really, many of them are a completely different breed. Many of them are way more open to this stuff. Many of them totally see the value of it. And so for me now, if I was taught, when I'm talking to older leaders who've maybe only got four or five years left of intention to work, I talk to them about saying, look, don't think you have to overhaul yourself in the next four or five years. It's not going to happen. But what you can do is become the bridge builder is take these guys under your wing and, and show them the, the ropes of running business, um, you know, as you've done it and talk to them about what doesn't work and what does from your experience and then give them the freedom to test and try and, and use different methodologies and, and bring new ideas to the table and trial new things and be, and, and be prepared to let a little bit of experimentation happen. I think that that would be, you know, if you're not prepared to make the changes to yourself, please don't stop others making the changes as well. Yeah, exactly. Because that ends up being extremely disempowering as well. But also, even if you haven't got a leader that's open to even show you the ropes and, you know, they're on their way out, essentially, like you can still take that upon yourself to learn what not to do. You can take that as a lesson. You can really own that. And I think the great leaders do. I think some of the best leadership lessons I ever learned were from the worst leaders I ever worked with in my life. And it, but it fascinates me still to this day how disempowered a lot of leaders feel when you then add on the workload you add on the stress you add on the burnout you add on the pressure you add on the responsibility that's just in the workplace then add on what's going on in their personal lives and past experiences that might be unresolved for them and, and things like that then it's just this massive melting pot so I think sometimes we forget that actually do you know what we've got all of the power we actually need within us we might not be able to affect rapid change immediately for everyone in the whole business but you can start where you are and I think that yes. gets lost sometimes and I think also, you know, I say this to leaders all the time, especially when I'm doing training. I say it is exhausting to carry around or to drag around an unhealthy, disengaged, demotivated, unproductive, do the bare minimum, apathetic workforce. It's exhausting because getting those people, you know, you can you can pay people whatever you want. You can have them sat at a computer nine hours a day. But they don't actually have to deliver anything. Yeah. And a lot of people don't. Um, and, and so if you're a leader of those types of people, trying to reach your goals, trying to achieve your targets, trying to show your value, 
you will you will never be able to do that on your own so you have to rally the troops you have to get people on board your bus and that is so much easier when people feel like you care that they have clarity around what their job is that you value their their contribution you know whether or not that's um washing the dishes to present to the the the, the customer you know, if there's a dirty dish in front of a customer, that creates a huge chain of problems for a hotel group or a restaurant group. So even if they, you know, we perceive that to be a low skilled, low paid, um, you know, small job, it actually is a really important job. And 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 teaching people and, and, co- and co- um, talking to those people and telling them how important they are to the system and that they have a role and that I value you and that I want to help you to progress and become more than a, a pot washer or a you know knife polisher um you know that is how you get a workforce to work hard for you yeah cracking whips firing people for hairstyles toxic uh, toxic rock star behaviors that is not how you get people to follow you and it's a very very short-lived um uh, success um uh, in those times and actually over the over the time it just ends up being so tiring and exhausting and that's why you know the the, the Deloitte study I referred to another Deloitte study uh, was it 76 percent this year of CEOs and C-suites saying that they want to leave their job consider it seriously consider leaving their job for one that better supports their well-being and I'm like but that's it like where are all these people going that 76% of all CEOs that were interviewed, if that's representative of society, there's 76% of companies that are not looking after people's well-being, and the CEOs are feeling the pressure of that. Yep. So instead, be the CEO that changes it in your organisation. That I suppose that's what I struggle with a little bit. What I, f- I find really fascinating about that is I think those C-suites are leaving, but then they are becoming entrepreneurs and they're setting up their own thing. And this is where I think those more perhaps toxic leadership styles and organisations that are struggling are going to start to disappear and they're going to mm-hmm. be overtaken by these smaller businesses um, that will end up way, way overproducing results compared to what has been and people are going to be happier and healthier in the process. Yeah, and it's, I was speaking to a CEO not so long ago, and he said, "Gosh, I huge organization, monolith organization." And I and he said, "Gosh, I only wish we had more of an entrepreneurial spirit. I only wish we were more of a startup mentality." And I'm like, "You don't need to wish that. <laughs> that can be. But what you have to do is break down all of this bureaucracy, all of this heavy handedness, all of this obsession with control, and you've got to build this in another way. The reason startups are so successful when they are successful um, is that they they build cultures. They people uh, want to go above and beyond because they believe in what it is they're doing. Um, they they're smaller, so they're easier to manage. The relationships are stronger." And, and all the rest of it, sure, they have their problems. Of course they do. Um, but, you know, if you want that entrepreneurial spirit, if you want people um, giving discretionary effort, if you want people innovating new ideas and solving problems and getting ahead of a problem before it even becomes a problem, you have to make that happen. And that doesn't come from designing a system or writing a new policy. That comes from inside people's hearts and souls. And we're just not getting to that particularly in very large organizations you know too much hierarchy too many layers and um and the humanness is is just gone you know absolutely gone we're all just machine uh, pieces of a machine 
100%. It's, it's like that, that heart and soul piece is so important that's been neglected for so long. And I think that's one of the reasons why so many startups are actually succeeding and doing well is because a lot of the startups that we're seeing now, like you said, are solving problems. They have a force for good element to them. You know, they're trying to bring good people together to be able to do something really meaningful. And they're tapping into those values of the individuals. And one of the things that we've been noticing is that a lot of leaders are struggling to balance maximizing profit with good people and like having a good impact on the planet at the same time. And there's a lot of pressure now here, particularly in this region and think worldwide, but particularly in this region with the 2050 goals with zero net emissions is a CSR responsibilities that are attached to it. So I'd love to hear like your take on why perhaps leaders are really struggling with balancing this. And if in your eyes, there is a way to overcome it and what perhaps tips you could give to anyone listening while we're struggling. Um, I think that we are struggling because we cannot find the time. Um, so I describe it as trying to change the engine in a car whilst it's hurtling 70 kilometers down Shakeside Road, right? Good luck to you. Not going to happen. So, and I, I wrote about this recently in an article. I genuinely believe that the only way to do this is to slow down and to give people um, the space to think and to analyze and to criticize and to find new ways and to to not just keep doing the same one thing or rinse and repeat year in year out and you know and that goes for HR as, as much as it goes for you know finance or operations or anything like that but but we have got ourselves into because people are so tired, you know, and part of that is a fallout of COVID. And that was a very emotionally exhausting few years. But but this has been going on far longer than that. I and mean, we're absolutely lying to ourselves if we think that COVID was the only reason that this has all come to the fore now. Um, but if if people are so tired and so exhausted and a lot of them are demotivated and disengaged because of all those reasons we've been talking about earlier, that they even if they're quite good at their job even if they come across as more enthusiastic than other people i can assure you they are still only giving 60 to 70 percent because they don't have the setup to give the other 30 percent they don't have the time to think they don't have the time to um oh they don't have the psychological safety to raise issues and so it's far easier you know, if you've got 100 things going on in your life, it's far easier to say, well, I'll just follow the same routine I did last year, because I don't have to think about doing something new, I just have to rinse and repeat. And then I get a tick in my, in my performance management box for doing a good job. So that's a big problem is the, the, the speed. I think we also the other big challenge we face is that CEOs and, and leaders typically, although less so in this region, arguably, um, are only in post for three to six years. And so by the, it's, it's like politics, by the very default, you are in a short term mentality, which means that you've got to be a pretty brave CEO to say, I'm going to be the one that undoes it all. I'm going to be the one that says, let's try something different. Let's try giving people 20% of their time for thinking and new projects, you know, like the Google model. Um, I'm going to be the one that creates a separate team 
um, from some of my best players in the current operational team who are the new ideas team, who are given a budget to experiment. We're not very good at letting people experiment and fail. Um, you know, we want results straight away for very new areas. And so, you know, budgets are so tight at the moment because of the economic situation around the world that it's very, you know, it's very hard to see, to, to, to be the one to take the risk to say, OK, I'm going to siphon off this proportion of my budget and I can write it off if it doesn't work. But how much will we learn? How, you know, we only need that one unicorn idea to be the thing that, that skyrockets us to the next space. And if you and if you gave every department, finance, operations, IT, HR, time and money of a reasonable proportion to, to try new things, to investigate new ideas and to and to test new ways and to talk to their other colleagues about those things, um, you might have a chance of making a difference and, and whether that's the climate um climate goals or whether that's um the you know well-being challenges or any other frankly any other innovation challenges technical technological challenges if we carry on doing the same thing we are going to continue to get the same result <laughs> and so somebody has to be brave enough to say i'm going to try something different and i think that's you know that's a bit why startups do that because start it's a, it's a much safer zone it's a much smaller amount of money it's a much smaller amount of time in the grand scheme of things when you're doing that with 25 or 100 people than it is when you're doing it with 25,000 people or 50,000 people um and so i understand why there's resistance to that but similarly you know people who are sitting on boards they have to give the ceos and the leaders the permission to say we know that the longevity of this is is wearing out and so we have to, as a board, make that decision to invest um, and we, we and actually make that a CEO's target, you know, and, and reward it if they do a good job um, and, and, and also reward, uh, you know, changing how we um, reward people in our businesses, rewarding people for great ideas, rewarding people for trying new things, you know, even if it doesn't work trying a new thing, because even if the actual first initial idea doesn't work, what you will learn along the way will be so valuable to the business. You will unearth things that were never going to be unearthed otherwise. So, you know, there is absolutely a value in doing it, even if it doesn't turn out quite as you thought it would. Um, so, yeah, I think that sort of experimental piece, that slowing down piece and the way that we reward people is really important. And actually, just on that point, um, talking about apathetic um, disengaged, uh, low productivity. There is some research that suggests that if you give um, employees something really, really um, important to do, that they really, really want to do for just 20% of their time, their discretionary effort on the other 80% goes up. So it, it, it does come back to you. And so, you know, they will be much happier and much more engaged in their other work if for 20% of the time they're getting to do new things and stretch themselves and do new challenges. So, you know, there's a lot to say for that approach. And that gives that you get more squeeze out of the time available when that happens, right? And I think that's something really important because in we live in a fast-paced world in business, no matter the size of your business. Like, yes, I think it can feel a lot faster when you're in a massive company, but at the same time, like 
we've all got 24 hours in the day. We've just got to find a way to get the most out of it and to maximize it. So have you got any other practical day-to-day solutions for anyone listening that needs to slow down? We'll come to the short-term, long-term thinking shortly, but the just the slowing down. What can somebody yeah. do? I mean, there's, I, 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 you can tell I'm a data geek, so I'll keep throwing statistics at you. Um, there are a lot of statistics to say that the work that we do in, in business, generally only about 35 to 50% of it is actually adding any value, mm. which means that you are going super fast, burning yourself out, you know, at the expense of your relationships with your husband, your wife, your children, all the rest of it, not going to the gym, not doing your exercise, not eating properly, grabbing something, shoving it in your mouth for 20 minutes before you go to the next meeting. My biggest tip to people who think they need to slow down to go faster (laughs) and, and get off the get off the hamster wheel is really assess what you are doing day to day. Spend a week or a month and write down what am I doing? And then next to each of those items, you know, how long did I spend doing that thing? And this is a bit of a, you know, boring, uh, irritating thing to have to do for a couple of weeks. But but gosh, you will learn so much. What did I do on on every day for eight hours? How long did I spend doing it? And then red, amber, green it. Green, this is directly contributing to the values, the mission, the vision, the goals, the targets. This is sort of indirectly doing it. That's an orange, but mm, maybe maybe I can drop some of that stuff. And you will be surprised how much red is on your list. And then the question is, if you have the authority within yourself to say, stop doing red things, then just stop doing them. Otherwise, you need to go and 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 the reason that I tell you to write it down is because you are now going to have to go and have a conversation with your manager that says, I've just been looking at how I'm spending my time. And I, I heard that we don't really, you know, we're not using our time most efficiently. And I'm not particularly happy just running on this hamster wheel. And actually, I'm costing you quite a lot of money not doing very much. And that's just soul destroying for me, exhausting for me and bad for you. So I'm going to suggest that we stop doing these things or we significantly reduce them. And I'm going to suggest I do more of this stuff I really, really enjoy and more of this value add stuff. Oh, and by the way, could I spend half a day a week thinking of new ideas? Um, any Some managers are going to freak out when you say that because you will be so far ahead in your thinking than they are. Um, but so there's going to be a degree of tact that has to be, you know, as you approach that conversation, as, but approach it as a really positive conversation, as a really willing, um, having high levels of personal accountability, having high levels of desire to do a great job, then illustrate that that is what you are trying to do. And in doing so, eliminate that busy work. Oh, my gosh, busy work. And, and we wonder why people are apathetic, because they're spending hours a day and hours a week doing stuff that adds no value. They know it adds no value, but it's keeping them from things that matter to them. Yeah. So as, a, as an organization, we have to get out of that. But if you don't have an organization looking at that, then do it for yourself. Yeah, exactly. Doing it for yourself is essential. And it's funny because the good thing is that with technology now is a lot of those kind of things that we were doing because we have we think that we have to be doing and the red stuff that you described can be automated. They can be delegated now to things like AI. But again, it takes a forward thinking company to be able to actually look at that. So but like you said, start with where you are, because like uh, and another good book, actually, that anybody can go and read is like essentialism. They talk about the concept of less is better. Right. Mm-hmm. That was very less but better. 
And it's again, it's a game changer. Even like you should give it to your team, give it to give it to your manager, you know, <laughs> like if you need to manage up a little bit. It's yeah. it can be really, really important so that you really believe it before you have those conversations as well. But the conversation that goes with it is absolutely necessary. Um, otherwise you're gonna start to resent the situation that you're in because you know it, but nobody's understanding you. Exactly. And I was just about to say get some allies, right? So, you know, there are other people in your team or in your organization, in your department, right? This is not a witch hunt. So you have to be careful that you don't plan it and like tell your manager that your manager's rubbish and why they're making you do all this busy work, right? Every manager is making people do busy work because they don't know any different. So instead you come at it as a group, you know, maybe it's a bit easier if there's three or four of you who've all done this exercise, who've all said, you know what, if we added up all these hours between us, we've basically got another whole person in our team. We stop doing some of this stuff. And guess what? That will make it easier, Mr. or Mrs. Manager, for you to reach your goals, for us as a team to reach our goals. And it's just such a more enjoyable way of working when you're actually doing stuff that matters. Um, but yeah, I, you know, and that can definitely happen um, at a at an individual level. But the but the absolute challenge is that a lot of that busy work is it comes in from other departments, and it's that crossover. It's HR asking you to complete this form or do this thing or do that thing, and to, to tick boxes and to and to to to, to meet to, to meet HR's goals and, and requirements. It places a huge amount of downward pressure on other departments. Um, there's a great book. Uh, well, there's a couple of great books. One's called The Nine Lives of Nine Lies About Work. Um, and the other one is Humanocracy, which comes with a little online course. And they both really talk about this wasted uh, time. And um, and then they give real life examples of how organizations have, have eliminated it at the organizational level. So if you're a leader listening to this thinking, oh, I want to get on top of that, there would be two books I recommend. And if you're an, and of course, if you're an individual as well, but, but, but um, they're, they're talking more at a systems level. Brilliant. That's really, really good. Great advice. Um, anyone listening, I know I'm going to go and read those off the back as well. Um, one thing that I th- find obviously there's a big part of this whole well-being piece is that it starts with leadership and we've obviously already touched on leadership but I feel like there has to be a role and there are roles of like um chief sustainability officers and chief well-being officers but again they're still very much like silo roles it's like there needs to be somebody that is looking from above at the whole company looking at sustainability of the individuals of the business of the bottom line of the vision the mission how are those things interconnected like what technology can we bring in what does the future look like and because like you said that short-term thinking is causing us problems not just in the workplace but you look at the society and governments and everything right and we won't go there today but the um I think it's really, really critical that we start to adopt that long-term thinking. And you've touched on that really, really nicely. So like, what do you see being some of the potential solutions for that? So um, to, let me just go back. So the big picture I'll come to in a minute, the the smaller picture. So the worldwide solution, the diagnostic solution, because this is such a problem and because I've never I've always believed it's a good idea to have a chief well-being officer and a well-being department in a business because they they can get things off the ground and they would be the people who are assessing the data and, and finding new solutions and identifying the risks and opportunities. There is a role for that. But the reality is that creating a culture of well-being is everybody's responsibility at 
from the from the employees through to supervisors and managers all the way up to the CEO. And um, at the moment, we typically sort of hand it off to either a well-being person or a HR person or a comp and benefits person. And then they are expected to suddenly work miracles across an organization the size of a small country. And, you know, let's be honest, if you as a CEO really asking yourself, you know, for well, they're set up to fail. You absolutely know they've been set up to fail. So then, then that creates resentment because the whole organization knows they've been set up to fail. And so then they're saying, well, why are we even bothering this? Because it's just paying lip service to it. So it actually can end up being um, counter. You can have a well-being person, but it can create less well-being, ironically. So when we created the WellWise system, I was really committed to making sure that we were able to give insights to every individual every manager of a certain size team or larger for anonymity purposes, every leader and the organization as a whole. And to empower those people with the insights and results for their area of responsibility, and then to give them, um, you know, these are your five priority areas to work on, and here's a load of help and guidance for you to do that. Because as we said at the beginning, most people are not knees deep in this like we are. And they don't they don't have those skills. They've never learned those skills. They don't they don't understand these topics. So they're never going to solve the whole thing simultaneously. And they're not going to build Rome in a day. So let's make it easy for them. Let's give them just three, three four, five things that they're working on with their team as an individual, with their department, and start chipping away and give them the tools to do that. And then and then make sure they do, right? Build that into performance management, into expectations. And when you're hiring, you want to see those skills, et cetera. So that's the that's that's the way to um stop it failing by being a single person or a single group of people's job. It isn't a single group of people's job, it's everybody's job. Um, so that's that's the first tip that I would have. From a um from a senior level. Um, I think you're absolutely right. And uh, for a very long time in the company that I was at before before I left and, and went on my own, um, we talked a lot about business as usual and the future. And it became very, very clear that you it's very difficult to ask the same people to be doing both because business as usual will always trump the future because you're firefighting right now, right now. And if you don't deal with that problem now, it's now a crisis, right? Um, you know, you can't say, sorry, Mr. Grumpy customer who's got to make a complaint. Um, could you wait till Tuesday? Because I'm currently on future time, not business as usual time, right? Not going to happen. So the idea we had, and I, I've since left, and I'm not sure how far this has gone, but the idea we had was to have a group of people sponsored by a senior leader, someone reporting directly to the CEO, whose job it was, to investigate and plan for the future of the organization. And that could be, there could be a climate net zero specialist in that um, group. There could be a wellbeing specialist, a culture specialist. There could be an innovation technology specialist there. There would be somebody doing research on looking at the future of economics and trends and patterns and what's gonna come into our industry that we need to be aware of. And to have people who are dedicated to doing that in your business and for them to come from all different walks of life and for them to come from different departments within the organization and be able to see this from finance and operations and all the rest of it um, and for them to be properly sponsored and for that person who sponsors them to have um, the direct line to the CEO. 
because if you don't, you know, the reality is a C, that should be the job of the CEO, but CEOs don't have the time to do that now. Like, let's not pretend that they do. So, you know, instead of us carrying on and saying, oh, that's the role of the CEO and why are we hiring another senior exec? Well, the CEOs are drowning. They're absolutely drowning. So instead, let's take that stuff off their shoulders as, the, as a core part of their job. Let's give it to somebody else and then you keep that line of communication open. And then the, the, the C-suite and the board and the senior leadership team make a decision of, okay, the futures team have just discovered this or they think this would be a good solution. Okay, are we going to invest in that? Are we going to move in that direction? Who do we need to bring in to start shaping and evolving business as usual to that space? If you don't have that, where is this innovation coming from? Where's your future coming from? How are you avoiding those risks? Yeah. Um, and a lot of companies aren't avoiding risks. You know, risks are hitting them really hard because they're desperately unprepared for them and many were completely forecastable had they had somebody and a team um, thinking about those things and you know in this region uh, a really great example of that is the amortization um, piece we've been talking amortization for the last 12 years since I've lived here and probably before and suddenly we start regulating it and it's like knocked companies sideways and how could it have how can it have knocked you sideways we've been talking about it for 12 years because people are just busy doing busy everyday work. They're not worried about what's coming in 10 years time. But those changes are going to be more extreme, more frequent and um, and come from different, more angles than they've ever come from before. And so not having uh, some people dedicated to keeping an eye on that and the planning for it is desperately unwise. Mm. Uh, and well-being is absolutely one of them. And it's already come and stop people in the face um and we're sort of desperately trying to fudge our way through it at the moment and tick boxes and look like we're doing stuff but if you really want to solve it because it's now holding your business up you need to have some dedicated people who are doing that for you you've got to start with the end in mind um, i really like what you you have said there about like the future team essentially that sits within the company because it has to be a team otherwise you know, it's like a relay race, but every time somebody passes the baton, they run in a different direction. The finish line's over here, you know, like, and then we constantly keep doing that with the churn of employees at all levels. But yeah. to have like that happening and not put in the future on the shoulders of one person, which namely is usually the CEO, right? So it's, it's so, so, um, I think forward thinking to be, to be entertaining that idea. Um, I think yeah. that's, really good point and i've seen other models of it where um uh companies have done um sub boards of um everybody below the age of 30 for instance so that you can only be on that board if you're under 30 interesting uh, uh, body shop are an example of, a, of a, having a gen z sub board um, and i've seen other ones where um it's been it's not been so much an age thing as it's been about um, like I said, that kind of bringing different minds together, you know, often there are certain kind of people who they've done their finance career, they've done all that stuff, they're kind of looking for a new challenge, they maybe only want a part time role, um, but they would be a great leader and mentor to some of the younger people in that group, and, and to be that bridge builder. And so yeah, I've seen that kind of model where it's like a mixture of age groups and a mixture of different, um, or different departments coming together. Um, but really, it's just people who who like me and you get very excited about what the future could be if only <laughs> and you need them to be telling you the if only bits because 
if they do, if then if somebody isn't looking for those if only bits and then solutionizing for them in advance when they come and they will come um they will catch you out yeah exactly and it's not like pie in the sky like we think everything's going to be perfect if only we think about the future right it's about being informed about what's happening day to day to be able to then be strategic in the what you're then proposing and i think sometimes people think oh you're just like really optimistic that it can be like that you know because it's so far removed from the reality of day to day but actually like you said earlier if we make these small changes and we start being really responsible for what is within our sphere of influence that will have a knock-on effect i've spoken about um Robin Sharma on this podcast again already before and it's like I really like just his whole ethos of leading without a title everybody can do the best they can with where they are Um, and it just seems so basic but it's it's so powerful and everybody can and I believe should own that responsibility because that's when we get to actually stand in our own power and authenticity in how we serve and how we lead absolutely and and you're right you alluded to it earlier that we're very quick to jump on the leaders and the the managers and all the rest of it and and I you know I do believe there's a big gap there and we have to fill it and we as leaders and managers um, rightly have the responsibility for doing that you know it's not all milk and honey at the top of the tree comes with massive level of responsibility and if you don't realize that you're in the wrong job um but Similarly, and then again, back to the Wellwise model. So the, the way the Wellwise model um, for well-being is we look at both um, when we're doing the diagnostics and we're talking to employees, we're looking at both their personal behaviours. How much extra discretionary time are you putting into your L&D? How much sleep are you getting? How many? How often are you eating rubbish or eating well? You know, what choices are you making? How, how much time are you investing in relationships with your colleagues, etc.? And then I and then I ask them all about how their relationship is with the bureaucracy and the strategy and communications and do they have clarity and all that stuff that is the responsibility of the organization to give them. But and and their results are going to give them strengths and weaknesses on both sides of that circle. Um, and, and, and it is as much about taking personal responsibility and, and, and looking after yourself and stepping up and doing what's within your control as it is about pointing the finger at your employer and saying, you're not looking after me. Well, you're not looking after me, but you're also not looking after yourself very well. You've got into some bad habits. You're creating some mess for yourself. So I do agree. I think there's, you know, there is a there is um absolutely it is right for individuals to take responsibility having said that if you work in an organization which does that has no psychological safety there's no voice um, your opinion is absolutely inconsequential and you're treated as a number you're completely disposable of course a person isn't going to stand up and, and give their ideas even if they're brilliant because they're just not being invited to and when they do they're often shut down they're even disciplined and so you have to make a choice as leaders and managers whether you're going to be open to hearing the ideas of others or you're not and there is a massive price to pay for not listening to other people's ideas yeah I hear that for sure 100 percent uh, so, Bobby, I haven't sent you this question in advance, but I'm curious to know what is your um, what's your take on becoming a force for good in the workplace? What does that mean for you? Um, so I talk a lot about spheres of influence, right? There's certain things you have complete control over, some control over, no control over, right? 
And so I think being a force for good, and I won't, I wouldn't even begin to profess to have enough knowledge about um, uh, how businesses can deal with the climate situation and all of that to, to talk about that. But if I get into my comfort space, which is well-being, um, being a force for good, as I said earlier, um, well-being is, um, is very much um, to do with the social proximity effect, right? And I talk about it being contagious, which wasn't a great word to be using two years ago, but it's okay to use it again now. Um, so yeah, well-being is contagious. So people with high well-being help other people to have high well-being and people with low well-being create low well-being in other people. They, they drag them down. Now, we mustn't blame people for that, but we do also have to say that if you sit in an office and you um, are hard to work with, you are unreceptive, you don't, um, you never got anything positive to say, you don't look after yourself, you're, you're always half falling asleep at the desk, you don't deliver anything on time, um, you're grumpy when you're asked to do something extra. Um, not only are you destroying your own career and also what a miserable place to be in, um, but you're making life very difficult for your colleagues who have to deal with you as an individual and, and pick up the slack that, and the balls that you're dropping. So I know it's very hard when you're in that low um, state and you don't really want to be somewhere and you're kind of just on the treadmill and going forward. But you do that is absolutely in your circle of influence to decide how am I going to turn up to work? How am I? I'm not going to let this world own me. I'm going to own my world. And um, I think that, um, you know, I said it earlier, the, the or maybe I said it in a different podcast. Sorry, I've recorded two podcasts today. Um, but I was talking earlier about, um, you know, there are always going to be difficult external factors that hit our organizations, our department, even our individual role. That is a given. What isn't a given is how we choose to talk to people, how we choose to treat people, how we choose to support other people, how we choose to pick up the slack when somebody's having a bad time, because when I need someone to pick up the slack for me, I would like them to do the same. We've got into this idea that everything's a competition. There's only so much cake to go around and we all want our slice. And that is not true because we can grow the cake if we work together. And so for me, it's about your force for good doesn't have to be some big miracle moment. It doesn't have to be coming up with a new solution for, you know, something. It just means how do I show up? Who, who, do, who am I? What type of attitude do I bring? And I don't mean toxic positivity. I don't mean turn up with a great smile on your face when you're feeling miserable, because there is an absolute joy and pleasure in sharing our pain <laughs> and, and, and you know, turning up with that as well sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's about that. It's, it's about choosing um, who do I want to be as an employee? Who do I want to be as a manager or a leader? And what impact do I want to have on other people? And that is a choice. It is 100% a choice. Um, as you said earlier, there are plenty of people in organizations that are not particularly healthy organizations, but they have their little patch of protectiveness that they they create and they they bloom on their own, irrespective of the chaos going on around them. And if more people did that, it would it would dissipate so much of the stuff that the bigger picture. But I think a lot of people feel very helpless. 
Um, I think a lot of people feel very disempowered and like this is the world and I just have to exist in it and this is the world I exist in. And it isn't true. You do have some control over that. So yeah, I, I that would be, you know, it's that my simplest tip, there's lots of other more complicated things, but my simplest tip is choose how you want to show up and what type of person you want to be and how I would say if, um, if 20 people in your team had to describe you, what would you want them to say? Yeah, that's powerful. There's um, an exercise that we used to do, uh, we still do in some sessions, is um, you put uh, your name on a piece of paper. So everybody in the room puts a name on a piece of paper um, and then you pass it around the room and everybody writes something about the person, like how they would describe the person. Obviously, it's anonymous. Um, you make sure they have the same color pen so they can't cheat and see who wrote what but then they get the paper back so they go take passes around the circle they get the paper back and they're like wow I didn't know people thought about me this way you know you can do it in a positive way and just write one positive thing or you can do that as in just write something completely honest that you genuinely believe if the environment is safe to do so psychologically um but it's a really powerful exercise and you're absolutely right that 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 contagion is real and we can only affect what we create essentially we talk about um having like an energy bubble every human being has got an energy bubble um literally around us um you know like three meters around all of us is we're already influencing what's around us and if we can own that and just own that and live in that and do our best within that bubble every single day then i'm with you like that's the way forward in terms of being a force for good in a way we can and and don't um don't wait till somebody else starts doing it like this idea that we have to like well if they're not doing it I'm not doing it like what is that mentality (laughs) like do it anyway you know um and 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 be be the irritatingly positive person that 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 comes and and is you know okay guys so we're in this situation but you know how are we going to get out of it like forward thinking all the time rather than wallowing in what's already happened you know too much wallowing going on so yeah I think that's um that that like you say three meters from us if everybody had a positive impact three meters from us yes it's the world would be a happier and healthier and more successful place so bobby last question for you is as you know is um this podcast for every listen that the show gets there's going to be a donation made on behalf of wellness theory b1g1 and your choice of the goal and you chose um the global goal three good health and well-being surprise surprise that you want to support <laughs> episode so can you tell us like why is that such an important goal for you and i know that's been the through line of the whole conversation but i would love to know uh, you know what why does that spring to mind Look, they're all great. Uh, the, I tell you the other one that I nearly chose is, um, uh, I forget how they say it, Justice and Good institu- good Institutions, that one, because I think that's really important as well. Um, but yeah, obviously good health and well-being, because I think a lot of people don't realise how important their health and well-being is. Maybe their health, we're a bit better educated about health in 2023, but well-being less so like well-being is perceived as something that people think is optional for myself and for others um and I suppose for me you know I understand that a lot of the way that that particular goal is broken down is is actually far more health related than it is well-being related um and that's right because of you know where large proportions of the world are with those things but if I think about having good health and well-being as a general ambition for the world um you know 
if we can get to a place where we understand, I, I, I use the phrase, I'm jumping about a bit here because my mind's going crazy, but I use, I talk about this idea that we are the only animal species on the planet that is not fighting for its own survival. Mm. And I really believe that's true. You know, if, if you if you study any kind of other animals, even in the worst of situations, they fight and they fight and they fight and they adapt and they evolve. And we're not. Um, we are um, we are destroying our health. We are destroying our well-being. We are destroying the health and well-being of others around us. And we are weaker as a result of that. We are weaker socially. We are weaker economically. Um, and it doesn't have to be that way. And it's very frustrating as a person who really understands that to continue to watch us do that to each other and to ourselves. So, yeah, so for me, anything that we can do, uh, whether it's within the sustainable goals or, or otherwise, that, that helps people to realise that that is that is a choice that we are making as individuals and as groups and as governments. Um, and it is one that we don't have to make. Uh, you know, we don't have to choose the same routes that we're going on. Um, then I'm all for anything that moves us in that direction. And that should not be, that should be universal. That should not matter where you come from, what country you are, what language you speak, how much money you've got. Um, you know, we leave a desperate amount of potential on the table in our organisations and in our societies. And that is because people are unwell and unhealthy. Yeah. And um, that that has to be humanity's goal because all the and the other reason I choose it is because I believe that all the other goals are easier to achieve when when we get that one right. Exactly. When people are healthy, when people are happy, when people are positive, they have more headspace to think about they're dropping litter on the floor, whether they're polluting the oceans, whether they're being cruel to animals, whether they're creating unjust systems. Yeah. When we're all angry and frustrated and unhealthy and tired, we don't have the capacity to make those things a priority. And so for me, it's the one that underpins all of the other 16. Nice. Yeah, you're, you're preaching to the choir here for me personally. Like our mission literally at Wellness Theory is to help people realise when they're healthy and well, they can be a force for good in the world because we, we echo that exact idea that actually, do you know what? That underpins it all. If we can, you know, have humanity at heart, be vital be vital and really ooze vitality in what it is we do and be able to show up authentically then happy days 100 <laughs> only good can come from that exactly 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 well time will tell time will tell we need to stay on this path and keep uh, championing this mission bobby yes. thank you so so much we'll make sure all of the links um to wellwise are in the show notes so anybody can come and find you um is there anything else you want to add to the conversation before we say goodbye no just well just to say thank you again for having me keep up the amazing work you know um more more power to you and to other organizations like you and i do you know i do talk a little bit doom and gloom because i think you know sometimes we have to have the hard lessons i am an exceptionally optimistic person and the only reason that i do this day in day out and and spend time talking to lovely people like you is because i do believe we have we are on the cusp of a much brighter future um it is ours to take um but hopefully by spreading the word and maybe inspiring others to just just dial it up 1% in the, in the right direction that you know then mission accomplished basically nice amazing bobby thank you so so much absolute pleasure thank you for having me
Today's episode was hosted by myself, Charlotte Stebbing-Mills, the co-founder of The Wellness Theory. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe and share with someone who may benefit and be part of our mission to help people realise when they're healthy and well, they can be a force for good in the world. I just wanted to share some more about our partner, B1G1. B1G1 is a global movement that enables businesses to incorporate effective impact creation into their everyday activities in a simple and powerful way. Through B1G1, businesses can choose from a wide range of verified projects around the world and integrate these impacts into their business operations. The core concept of B1G1 is that every business transaction or interaction can be directly linked to making a positive impact in our world. Whether it's providing access to clean water, supporting education, planting trees or addressing social issues, B1G1 enables businesses of all types to make a real difference. To find out more about them, visit their website at b1g1.com. Until next time, be well, mean well, and make a difference that lasts. See you in the next episode.